This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Jess, who performs her internet business as Jess Bad Crip on Twitter, which is linked below if I got that wrong. In this conversation, we talk about disability, specifically crippling anxiety, which she has dealt with uh, for her life. And uh, she just talks about her experience and methods of dealing with that. Very personal discussion, very lived experience-esque, which does have its place, especially when we're getting to know one another, which is a good human activity to do, especially when you're not trying to prove yourself in any other given way than as alive and real. So without further ado, really appreciate having Jess on and do check her out on Twitter and elsewhere when she gets around to publishing other things than posts. Uh, should I say that? Uh, I will mute that um, because I don't want to screw with the algorithm. So here's Jess. Hi. Hey. Good morning. Good morning. How, how are you doing? I'm okay. Ironically, Good. having a panic attack. Oh, lovely. Good place to start. Yeah. I, I, talking to the master. <laughs> kidding. <laughs> <laughs> kidding. Kidding, 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 I'm like the sensei of anxiety. <laughs> How's your week going? Been. pretty good it's been kind of busy um good but i think this is like the last thing i have for the week so easy weekend coming which will be nice yeah you have like a D D, or you already did you already did your D D. um we actually shifted it to yesterday so that worked pretty well are you the master of that or are you a participant no <laughs> No, I'm not the master of that. I'm relatively new. I've only been playing for like six months, okay. something like that. So I'm still awkwardly figuring out what to do with the hundred dice someone has given me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's fun, but I'm still learning. What are you kind of getting out of it? What's it exercising? Well, so I have a theatre background, so I enjoy the sort of role-play, improvisation aspect of it, but it's also just socialising with friends and some sort of storytelling aspect as well. It's like, remember those choose-your-own-adventure books as a kid? It's like that came to life and you can do it as an adult, and only half the population judges you for it, so it's all right. <laughs> Which half is that? I the half that um, decided D and D was what was it? It was like a cult in the nineties. There was like this big scare about it. Harry yeah. Potter and D and D it's ruining the kids. Yeah, I got um, twenty years. I uh, was not allowed to play it. My parents caught me making a dungeon map, and I got a lecture and you know Satanism and That's all this stuff. Crazy. Yeah. Even though my dad's a huge LOTR fan, and he, I grew oh, up really? with him reading that to me, uh, you know, chapter I nine. Think I think I'm too young to know 
I, I wasn't around for that scare, so I've only heard of it in hindsight, and it sounds really abstract. <laughs> so getting my head around someone actually sitting their kid down and being like, we, we don't do this, is quite yeah. interesting. Yeah, just take everybody that's overusing the words uh, bigotry, transphobia, and racism, and uh, you know, just flip, turn them into Christians, and then angle them towards magic, and it's the same. You were the OG transphobe. Nice. <laughs> Dungeon phobes. Yeah. Dungeon phobe. Yeah. <laughs> a cool. Jesus phobia, I guess. The worst kind. Oh, yeah. God bless us, each and every one. What would you like to cover today? It's your podcast. I know. I don't have anything that's off limits, per se. If, okay. Um. Is there a dance where the guest leads or where the female leads? Is that salsa? Do you know dancing? Isn't there a dance where the, the female actually takes the lead? I believe there is. I don't know what it's called. Okay. Well, whatever that is, that's what we're going to do. Okay. No pressure. <laughs> but I did want to speak to you about um, anxiety and uh, as something that, that you – if to the degree that you're willing to talk about that, to speak about that in all of its uh, manifestations and then the ways in which one manages that. I've been uh, trying to take that bull by the horns uh, for the past, uh, you know, six months or so. You know, I just kind of ignored it and now I'm like, okay, what is this thing? And as soon as I started paying attention to it, I'm like, oh, it's happening now. (laughs) This is the thing that I deal with. (laughs) It's one of those things that's quite easy to ignore when you're not ready to face it because you just withdraw from things that make you uncomfortable and slowly sort of make your experiences smaller and smaller into this comfortable bubble that carries on shrinking because the problem gets worse and you're ignoring it. Hmm. Um, But I've dealt with anxiety in some way, shape or form since I was like a young kid like as long as I can remember I was like an anxious kid um and it really came to a head uh when I was going through puberty so like 13 14 Hmm. um and I think we were just on the cusp or I was just on the cusp of before that wave of like mental health acceptance everyone needs to talk about it everyone has a label for it so it was when i was broaching it with my parents as a younger child it they didn't really have a concept for it either which was a whole different um experience of tackling things because you as a person when you first come across that within yourself don't really understand what's going on and then to have try and explain it to people and have them not also not understand what's going on was quite a nebulous experience hmm. but it's been interesting seeing people try and make a push to accepting it and then almost over accepting it over the past few years and it's now quite fashionable to talk hmm. about you've been in a dark place <laughs> as people say yeah that that's one thing that's always interesting about any sort of mental health issue for whatever reason it really ignites the psyche and it it moves through the culture and then it starts to, the diagnosis starts to perpetuate itself uh, in the culture because now people have words to put 
uh, to these feelings, and then there yeah. should be some sort of prescription there, and then it becomes something to accept, which then becomes something to celebrate, and then mm-hmm. the people who have it are kind of like pushed to the side yeah. because everybody has it now. <laughs> everybody has it because it's, it becomes like a descriptive word, word rather than a diagnosis, which could be a flaw hmm. in the English language as we have it currently because theoretically they mean the same thing like the feeling of being anxious doesn't have to denote a diagnosis of anxiety mm-hmm. but it's definitely sort of become a runaway train at this point <laughs> where um i know that if i tell people um i have a couple of anxiety disorders the first assumption is like you're a bit nervous kind of deal when what i'm trying to impress is like no this is <laughs> like i need you to understand the um the the extra part on top of just the feeling of anxiety that is normal and everyone experiences it's quite interesting trying to communicate that when everyone has been primed to consider it quite a normal average everyday descriptive word of feelings um so yeah so you're okay with calling it a disorder that that helps you. Yes, that's very yes. useful. Okay, so that we're not going to use the word disorder with. We're going to take away that moral term of kind uh, of excuse yeah. that at least for the time being. What mm. makes it a disorder? What's that extra level to it? Um, as far as diagnose, there's a couple of levels. As far as diagnostically speaking, really you have something that could be treated as a disorder when it's making an impact on your life. So there's a specific phrase they use that basically means that it's having um, noticeable repercussions on your life in a a repeatable and diagnostic way. Um, For me, there's, there's also a sort of mechanical side to it. So, Normal anxiety, you'll have like a big speech coming up and you're really anxious about it. And then it starts getting out of control when that fight or flight response in your brain is being triggered for like going to the supermarket or answering a phone call or doing things that really you should be able to manage as a person day to day. And it starts triggering this part of your brain that we don't really use as humans anymore. The part that was developed to, like, save you from a mammoth hundreds of thousands of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Sort of, yeah. I'd say probably the base way to describe it would be a overreactive biological mechanism within someone's brain that can be treated or addressed in Okay. Plethora of manners, whatever you choose. Um, okay. So, you think? it's like feeling like you're under attack or that something's going to happen. Uh, and it's not yeah. in line with the reality of the situation, at least as far as physically concerned. You're not actually going to yeah. be so slaughtered. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's that, um, it's, it's the you're in danger sort of like life peril. Adrenaline mm-hmm. surge that we get, we should get in really terrifying moments being triggered in day to day moments. Yeah. And um, how that expresses in people is sort of what we know as anxiety disorders. Okay. 
So there are a number of different tacks to take on managing that, or I guess is is curing it a part of the equation, or is it mostly managing or resetting yourself? Can you do a final brain reset, you think? Speaking as someone who doesn't have any qualifications <laughs> in yeah. this area. And, and, think, and of course, we're talking on a person-to-person basis. So from yeah. your p- point of view, yeah. For me personally, um, I have. <laughs> my sort of mental illness is at a point where it's significant enough that it isn't a curing situation. For me, it's a lot about being able to accept feelings that my brain will trigger regardless and retrain Hmm. myself to still be able to keep sort of my logical day-to-day thoughts in that situation of panic. So not responding to those physical feelings of panic with, oh, this actually means something's going wrong. Okay. Sort of accepting it, which is, I I currently do ACT therapy, which is Oh, God, now I'm going to forget the name of my fucking therapy. Uh, It's acceptance and something therapy, which basically just means um, rather than with mindfulness, you're taking a thought that you're thinking and you're positive positive talking your way out of it. ACT is more like I'm feeling a thing and that's kind of just how my body works and this is we need to have skills in place to get around that. yeah is i think with some people sort of lower ends of mild to moderate anxiety cbt can be really helpful just talk therapy um and definitely i would say is curable people can get over anxiety pretty easily um i've been dealing with it for a decade at this point (laughs) with two separate diagnoses around it so it's kind of at the point where you need to sort of Accept that this is the way your body works and learn to live with it and function the best you can to that point. Okay. Yeah. So when you were 13, 14, how did it first arise? Uh... I, so my parents are quite um, adventurous. So we would go hiking and skiing and all of those things. I have a couple of very vivid memories of maybe you guys don't have this in America. In New Zealand, we can just drive up mountains to get to ski fields. Um, But the roads up there tend to be sort of a road cut into the side of a cliff. (laughs) So you've got like a single dirt track going up a mountain with a sheer drop the other side um, and cars coming both ways down it. So it becomes quite an interesting um, adventure just getting there to start with. For 13-year-old me, it was sort of the thing that sort started first triggering what later developed into panic attacks. So it was a fairly reasonable situation that it started in, but my reaction to it as a teenager was um, disproportionate. Um, hmm. It was uh, like hysterical tears because it's the only way sort of I could express the fear that had settled inside me um, as a teenager who hadn't got the words to express that. Um, and then as I sort of got older and didn't treat it (laughs) and sort of went, no, 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 this is fine. People, adults who didn't really know, um, who weren't familiar with anxiety disorders being like, you don't need to be a drama queen. You're okay. You're you're safe. Um, and then I got to sort of hit 18 adulthood and those similar 
physical and emotional reactions started seeping into less triggering scenarios, hmm. which mm-hmm. again, triggering the word that has been ruined by identity politics of late. <laughs> um, yeah, so it started seeping into everyday scenarios um, that eventually became enough of a problem that I essentially withdrew from the world. My circle of things that didn't make me anxious got smaller and smaller to the point where I didn't leave the house for a good part of a year. Maybe once or twice I would leave the house. Mm. Um, because it's it's like the ultimate controlling of your environment. If you whittle down your comfort zone to involve just you and not let anything else into that, then you don't have to deal with these terrifying out of control feelings. Um, but that, you were yeah. you were trapped in, or you, you kept yourself in your house. Did you keep yourself in your bed? Were there like did it like kind of devolve to like a depressive state, like a catatonic kind of? Yeah. Kind of thing? So- I simultaneously deal with um, sort of depression and things like that, which hasn't, okay. I've actually been doing pretty well with it in the last two to three years, um, which was a relief. <laughs> but it did, it sort of whittled down specifically to my bedroom, was the safe space that my brain had carved out for myself. Um, even things like going to the kitchen to make food would, would make me sort of nervous, wouldn't bring on a full panic, but it would be an uncomfortable situation that I would hmm. want to retreat from. Um, and in hindsight, talking about it is strange because it doesn't make logical sense. It's really interesting trying to describe something in a clear and concise way that is irrational at its core. <laughs> Being scared of leaving your house really doesn't make a lot of logical sense. There's nothing to be. There's no mammoths outside mm-hmm, <laughs> to scare mm-hmm. you. Um, but yeah, it's just that switching of something in your brain when you sort of have this as a disorder that um, sort of takes logic and decides that you don't need to deal with that right now. <laughs> it's not mm-hmm. something we need to deal with. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so what caused you to bottom out and say, okay, this is not tenable. This isn't what I want to be doing. I I met someone online who um, I, so when I was, ex- when I was introducing myself to this person, um, voicing what I do with my life was almost like talking in the mirror to myself. I could hear myself saying, oh yeah, I don't really do that much and I don't really have any friends and I don't go out. And as I was saying it, I was like, wow, this is a problem. <laughs> this is, I'm like embarrassed sharing this with another person. Um, and it kind of went from there. The more I sort of started interfacing back with people, the more I was able to sort of see that I had a real problem, sort of taking that denial aspect away and forcing yourself to look at it. Okay. Um, it could be the case that some people in this situation join internet groups that enshrine that, make it a part of their identity. Were you, yeah. uh, did you do that? Were you tempted to do that? Did you see people doing that? What were your reactions to that? 
I still see people doing that. If sort of more on Facebook and Instagram, so personal sites where you're sort of tied to people through real life connections. So you see stuff that you wouldn't usually subscribe to anyway, if you're tailoring your own social media experience. Um, As a teenager, I think that was one of the biggest things that sort of perpetuated my teenage self being okay with some parts of this. I found insular communities on websites like Tumblr back in the day where it was just groups of thousands of people from young teenagers to young adults um, just sharing thoughts and memes and content and um, affirmations centered around uh, mental health symptoms that really in hindsight was extremely unhealthy to engage in but as a young teenager also felt like some sort of camaraderie a a group of people who quote unquote understood when that was quite hard to find in real life Mm -hmm. um and it it still happens this day there's there's, co-rumination is one of the big words that's uh specifically yeah. uh, ascribed to tendencies within females uh, growing up. Uh, they they get together and they all kind of share the same mental state. Yeah. And they all kind of vibrate and on at, that level. At the time, you're sort of sharing that state and you're going, hey, someone understands, someone, I'm not alone in feeling this anymore. But on a larger level, you're just sort of normalizing these ideas between each other and passing it back and forth and borrowing some traits from other people that you didn't have. Um, Yeah, it's um, not good. But I don't know if there are ways to deal with that as the internet exists currently, short of offering resources to young people before they get into those insular communities they almost seem to have gotten worse because now it's um, almost um, pseudo-medicalized in their approach to things now. It's like they'll use diagnosis names, they'll um, use sort of positive affirmation language and share, whereas it used to be a couple of teenagers saying, I feel really bad, do you feel the same? It's now, it's okay to feel this way, lots of people feel this way without a real push to signaling where the line is, where it becomes something you need to deal with outside of yourself. And again, that affirmation becomes acceptance, becomes celebration in a way. And there might be a negative aspect to policing uh, hard questions or uh, Mm. denigrating people who pop that bubble or uh, show something else. Like it's, it's better to actually have adventures or something like that, you know? Yeah. Seems to be, maybe it's just what I've seen or my experience, seems to be sort of localized towards more left communities as well. I haven't seen much of the um, celebration and glorification and normalization of that within right-wing circles or conservative circles specifically. Um, It's almost been bundled in with the normalization acceptance of LGBT and trans. It's also sort of molded into one take you as you are, even if those things are harming you scenario that's Hmm. popped up. Mm -hmm. Um, 
which sort of makes it harder to critique at the end of the day as well. If it's people from that same, anyone who disagrees with me is attacking me mindset. Yeah, erasing your existence, your authentic yeah. ex, uh, lived experience as an anxiety. Yeah. Anxiety. <laughs> you just coined that, and I don't, I'm not sure I like it. <laughs> okay, it came out of nowhere. How did you end up <laughs> okay. getting tired or walking out of that particular community? Uh, and did you uh, did that precede uh, that realization where you're typing it out and you were able to see yourself? Had you already left that community behind? And I think it kind of happened hand in hand. Okay. Um, once you sort of sort of start to shift your perspective on things a little bit, everything around you you start to notice it a little bit more. Um, but I, I, I kind of had a, com a sort of a converging of several different things at once. I um, had this experience of explaining my sort of life to someone new who I hadn't met and seeing that back at me. But I also simultaneously um, started on a new medication with my doctor, which has been amazing for me. Um, after years of trying things that just didn't work. Um, and then I, it was kind of cyclical. So once you have all these positive things starting to feed back and sort of a self-awareness feeding back into your life, you sort of gain the motivation to be like, okay, so maybe if I change the way I'm eating, I won't feel so shit all the time or mm -hmm. stop staying in bed all day, getting delineations so you're sleeping better people don't like to talk about it but or don't like to admit it but a large part of mental health and fixing it comes from the scenarios you put yourself in so the food you give yourself the how well you take care of your body um i know if i don't sleep i'm just a wreck the next day <laughs> it just gives you a you need to give yourself a solid foundation to start from to get anywhere within your day um especially if you're dealing with significant things that need your attention and focus without you feeling like crap otherwise because you've had two mm -hmm. hours of sleep because you were mm -hmm. playing WoW all night. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so would it be fair to say that you were, you kind of locked yourself in a physical space, your bedroom, and did you also kind of lock yourself into a headspace too where there was a very kind of uh, small uh I guess, uh, environment. Did you, once you started breaking, branching out of your room, did you start branching out in your communication, in your internet yeah. life, in your headspace? Yeah. I, I would say I sought more perspectives from people, less of the, um, this is okay, this is normal, and sort of challenging perspectives. The problem is when you're in such a um, sort of insular and vulnerable mindset, opposing views and suggestions that you could make it better if you made better choices come across as quite combative when you're feeling so low and weak anyway mm -hmm. um, and of course you if you're already feeling in that negative mindset you're more likely to respond negatively and it's just easier to discount things as attacks or people just not understanding when you're in that kind of situation but I found branching out and seeking more diverse thought opinions from people was helpful um, helpful how? it helps you recon recontextualize where you are when you're sort of functioning off your own 
sorts opinions and ways to deal with things there is no wrong answer it's whatever you choose you're directing your own thing um but once you sort of branch out you have to start questioning yourself um which is helpful but it's a hard step to make because you have to admit that you've been making wrong choices at some point that you haven't been doing the best you could for yourself um which Mm -hmm. is difficult for people Mm -hmm. usually yeah that challenge can give you, uh, could be exhilarating too once you get hooked on that. And it depends on what level of challenge you're seeking, like whether it's just confrontation, like debate style stuff, like we're going to pit ourselves, our intelligence against intelligence to just, I want to look at things in a different way. And then you're like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. 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 And you find that your social circles are suddenly more rewarding. You're not sort of, sharing negative emotions and thoughts back and forth with each other. Um, yeah, having something different to focus on that isn't just you sort of marinating in your own shit show thoughts constantly. Hmm. Um, yeah, it was certainly eye-opening. <laughs> Did you... Way to go with it. What about uh, like productivity uh, or study or did you find ways to start uh, once you started initiating that moving out of uh, the box? Mm. uh, Did you uh, gravitate towards doing things, being active in a way? uh, Or what were some of the other ways that helped you expand yourself? I started... My case case is a little bit different. I have obviously physical restrictions that stop me going and joining a sports club and finding more people that way. So I sort of found dif- it was finding different social communities online and okay. not staying within the places that you were. Um, it's, it's so pathetic, but Twitter was helpful, <laughs> which I didn't so. use. I didn't use Twitter before I started sort of trying to change what I was doing because Twitter made me feel awful because there's so many different opinions on that. You're going to come across something that makes you angry. And if you're in a space that uh, sort of predisposes you to having sort of heightened emotions, anger, if you're more likely to want to pick fights with someone social media is just not enjoyable (laughs) finding someone on twitter that you disagree with isn't like oh there's a random person hundreds of miles away who disagrees with me that's a shame it's like this person is wrong and i need to tell them exactly how they're wrong and if i'm not morally virtuous by the end of this conversation i've failed in some manner um so getting out of that combative mindset realizing that sometimes it just doesn't matter sometimes you can just let things go um was really helpful and then that just enables you to find different areas of communities that you may not agree with everything but it doesn't matter it's okay you can branch out that way enabled me to get back into politics again um local international international I live in a tiny town in the middle of New Zealand. Like, so you want to bitch about uh, President Biden? Like, you oh. want to tar- target the big guys? 
bitching about President Biden should be everyone's favorite pastime. <laughs> that should be a prerequisite for a healthy I have to say, you craft some delicious zingers. <laughs> it's just too easy. It's like a soap opera of politics. It's great. I guess so, yeah. There's some, uh, some sort of uh, senescent end of empire tragic comedy. The fall of Rome. <laughs> <Yeah>. Live tweeted. <laughs> yeah. And it's also, America is so fascinating because everything sort of like comes across as dramatized and heightened compared to other countries' politics. But you also have the unique position of being a major superpower in the world that has its hand in essentially every country in the world in some shape or manner. So, it comes back to international viewers' homes to roost as well. It, um, <laughs> it's quite interesting watching it trickle down and going, that's going to get here at some point. So oh, great. <laughs> but you got into politics. Was that for fun or to actually uh, to do something in that domain? Like advocacy or, uh, you know... Uh... I think it started off a sort of small circle advocacy advocacy activist stuff it wasn't i wasn't doing anything but you felt good if you posted about i don't know white people being bad or something and yeah, everyone yeah. Went, oh great that's amazing good job and i'm like i've done something for today um but it's sort of branched out um if politics i don't know it's just fascinating to me on sort of a societal level sort of a able to watch it play out i would like to do something around it one day but it's the sort of thing that really can only come after reaching my full potential and my mental health and wellness there's not going to end up well if you try going into politics um, I don't know. There's plenty of uh, there's plenty of mentally unstable politicians. That is, is so true. Why did I? Oh god, we're just short. We're like a month short of a politician having a panic attack on the in the middle of the house, and everyone being like, "You're so brave." You think that's going to happen? Yeah, everybody cheers. I mean, tongue in cheek, but like. Well, no, they yeah. they tried to do that. They staged that uh, AOC's uh, um, representative Cortez's. Uh, yeah. Uh, comrades uh, did a weepy session in Congress, or yeah, in, in Congress uh, a few weeks back. That was that was regarding the Capitol riots, right? Yeah, yeah. all that trauma and privilege uh, that they had to shake off. I had to pointedly not watch most of that live stream. It was, it's interesting because I assume that she thinks it's coming across as quite um, righteous and, um, I don't know, inspiring sympathy in people. It isn't really how I've seen it received or how I receive it. Mm -hmm, I can't, mm -hmm. from the position of someone who's had sort of mental health issues, I couldn't ever imagine being in the middle of a sort of a episode of that and then going, you know, this needs to be filmed and uploaded to Twitter somehow. I need to live stream this. It's a strange mental place that I, I'm not really able to get into the perspective of, but it happens a lot. There are people who will like post photos of themselves in the middle of a panic attack and receive the social credit for that, that I can't yeah. understand. I find myself being quite cynical and questioning whether it's real and 
feeling bad afterwards, but yeah. There is a, uh, speaking as a social media user myself, there is a certain... Uh, I'm yeah, I'm verging on the professional, and so I've had to clean up my act or or know that uh, there's there's easy content to produce where it is kind of garnering sympathy. Sometimes I do that uh, when I think it's funny, like somebody will criticize me in a really poor manner, you know, on on YouTube or somewhere else, and it's just like, look at this fool, or oh, I never knew of that about myself, you know, kind of cheeky yeah. stuff, uh, but. As I proceed along it, it's like, well, is that adding value to anybody else? If if I share my struggles, like I, there's one thing to share a cat video or a witty aphorism, like that's that's qual- quality content. Me necessarily being vulnerable, one, is it authentic if I'm performing it? And then two, like what am I expecting? Three, what are people actually getting out of it? Four, how do they come to see me if I do that too often like what does that actually do to my reputation or, or mm. by reputation I mean the people's uh, projected uh, vision of me in their heads which yeah. I kind of give them insights into um, but I, I do see like you know an early era Facebook for me uh, you know you, you want to like share your problem or you know uh, express that in some way but before I became like uh, somebody's professional more or less it was just me and my friends so there was a different yeah. conversation but once you start getting more and more public that stuff you got I think if you don't phase it out then you are definitely using that for a reason that's a part of your brand it's not just you yeah. it's a performance at that point because you're, yeah. you're actually operating in a performance light. Yeah, there is a sort of strange situation that happens when you merge mental health as your area of expertise on social media. At, at a certain point, if you're producing content, you're actively thinking of things to put out into the world. And when that's mm-hmm. coming from the area of what should be an authentic experience, uh, it cheapens it quite significantly it's weird to watch sometimes but on the other hand i've um posted about um sort of going through exposure therapy and taking steps to do that um to sort of widen my bubble back out again and we'll get countless dms of people being like i've suffered with the same thing and i'm going to try it tomorrow just see how it works and then people who will keep updating you so it does have some sort of positive effect on yeah. people in your audience. Yeah, being it's, piteous it's, responsibly. Yeah, it's like finding that balance between a sort of a self-motivation sort of you can, you can do this positive message rather than a, a self-pitying kind of internal yeah. Feel bad for me. I've had a horrible day. Feel bad for me. Tell me how amazing I am because I feel terrible kind of message that you put out. It is a hard line to walk mm-hmm. and there probably isn't a right answer to it because well, it, this is it, it all... de- really depends on a number of factors, uh, really. I've seen um, specifically uh, trans and detrans people come out and and expose themselves on the internet and because of that particular issue uh, there's a lot of politics at play and people will take them up 
as the standard bearer, they'll, they'll be politicized. They'll be weaponized. And it just yeah. for some people, it totally wrecks their mental health because now all that dysphoria becomes huge, huge projection. And then they have to yeah. constantly fight about it, which doesn't actually help getting away for some people. I, I've seen that. So it is with mental health. I can see perhaps with uh, physical ailments, it could be a different matter when you're talking about something that's a little bit more rooted in, in the body or in material actuality. Um, and then you're, you're talking about that on the internet. It might be a little bit easier to like kind of delineate uh, rather than when you're talking about mental health and mental states. It kind of brings physical health. Physical health on the internet brings its whole, it's just like this whole other basket case of things. The second you mention a diagnosis, everybody has a PhD. Everyone around you has got this false chakra aligned and needs to tell you about it because it's really <laughs> important. And the homeopath from 20 years ago swore by it. So, yeah, sharing anything personal online in a manner outside of your sort of close friends on Facebook circles is a risk that you have to weigh up as you do it. And mm -hmm. I'm not entirely sure that people realize that until it's done. Yeah, until um, they're out. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, um, it's easier to explain and share things when it's rooted in physical health, but <laughs> you also get quite a reaction of, I'm so sorry you're going through that. It must be so hard. You're so strong. And it's like, it's kind of just how I exist. And it's, yeah, depending on people's mindset, hmm. the reactions to what you put out in the world can really come off differently. I know a few trans people who um, are contrarianly trans as <laughs> a really awkward phrase so um, actively put themselves Contransian? out there Contransian? actively put themselves out there as a um, sort of flip of the coin to the woke sort of I identify as don't question me crowd and their entire presence on the internet is people calling them a transphobe, an internalized transphobe for having a different opinion. And it, it does, it shapes your entire presence online. You sort of become known as that person um, who is this thing in this category that we can now identify and put a moral judgment on. There's also the game of kind of owning it in a way. Your Twitter handle is bad cripple or bad crip. And there it is, is the, I just learned that there's this thing called critical crip studies. There's actually like this uh, critical version, critical theory version of, of cryptology or crypt, uh, crypt, cryptology. Yeah, crypt or <laughs> Sorry. Amazing. Cryptology. That's great. Uh, I haven't heard of this, I don't think, or at least not under that name. Well, it's basically about ableism, I guess, is uh, probably where it, you would see it pop up. What do you think about ableism? Um, what do you think about, you know, owning that crip thing? Because every once in a while I see some post by you and a few other people who really, they flip it. Some, sorry to be racial uh, right now, but some like wealthy, white, liberal, well-meaning, up, uppity person comes out like, I'm going to save all the cripple people, you know, or yeah. they make a statement. And then you and, and other people in here start like flipping it around in this really funny, but at the same time, I'm not supposed to laugh out loud. I'm not going to respond to it because, you know, like you guys, you guys can do that, but I can't, you know. Yeah. 
It's yeah. There, there's specifically with certain words, there's become this big hanger on language within sort of ableism recently. Yeah. Um, specifically with, I don't know what we're allowed to say on YouTube, the R word. Can we say retard on YouTube? Well, it means different things to different people. Uh, apparently, yeah. it's really, really bad in the UK. That's a bad, bad, bad word. But in Australia, you guys just say it all the time. So, or not you guys, but your neighbors say it all the time. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's strange because usually we go with America rules on the internet. So usually if it's events of America, that's kind of the lexicon that we absorb. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you will get a lot. There's specifically a couple of big content creators with obvious physical disabilities who use words like that just as you would use words like stupid or dumb, just mm -hmm. descriptive, mm -hmm. colloquial quite type words. And you will get strong reactions from just average everyday people in America who will insist that you're harming um, your cause and your community by using these words. It's it's sort of like hmm. the most watered down version of ableism you can get. Ableism as it sort of presents to people in everyday life with disabilities are things like if you get married in um, a lot of countries um, and you are currently so because we can't work often people will get money from the government to be able to just exist if you get married that money disappears so you end up um, financially worse off for getting married in a lot of countries around the world so there's a lot of more sort of bureaucratic institutional sides to ableism um not being able to get into public spaces if they don't have accessible openings but words like retard and dumb and crazy aren't i've never seen somebody um it's hard to find the right wording i've never seen somebody um with anything significant to worry about in life actually be concerned about things like that it seems like the mm. thing you would go to after you've like gone through all the things in your ableism box and dealt with them and your life's perfect and it's like oh well somebody said a mean word and now i have time to be offended about that so i guess yeah um, yeah yeah it really shows the uh kind of champagne activists kind of uh mo when they police language uh, and and it's it's the exertion of polite society by fiat in a way, and it, again, it's a virtue signal, so it makes them feel good, uh, yeah. and that's why it's funny to see people of the community that's being championed, whatever community that is, kind of pipe up and take that person down in a way. Tr yeah, the primary motive. The, sorry, the primary motive of that activism is to make the person saying it feel better feel like they're doing something when really most people who fall into that community just don't give a shit couldn't care less and it kind of has this tinge of um speaking for a, com a community a group of people who are too um weak or incapable of speaking for themselves um mm -hmm. which just isn't the case most unless they're dumb Unless they're dumb, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, Democrats. Or can't type, I guess. Illiterate. Yeah. They're so ableist in that way. 
yeah, there's also this other side of things where there's quite you'll see it in the deaf community, the perpetuation of the idea that fixing disabilities is actually ableism. So yeah, uh, yeah. Well, is deaf is really interesting because, or the deaf community, because they've created such a rich culture, specifically through culture sign language. It. Sign language is yeah. a very, any language becomes very no, powerful. like a complete language and culture within itself. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if it's the case in America, but in New Zealand we have three sort of national languages. We have English, our native language, which is Māori, and then we have sign language as our sort of third national language. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, it seems to be sort of, I've seen it a lot sort of permeating out past things like um, deaf culture, a sort of notion that if you're offering... Um, advice or help to someone that you're trying to actively change an intrinsic part of who they are and that's a bad thing and yeah, there's a lot of it hasn't ballooned into this big part of discourse at this point but it's like you can see it mm. coming in the distance and you're like oh that's going to be an issue in a six months or so yeah, well, I, one version of the critique that I could make about mansplaining, let's just say, is, you know, while there are instances where it's improper to talk down to people, absolutely, I hate being talked down to. And while there are different uh, power dynamics in play when somebody assumes more authority than the person that they're talking to or more expertise, uh, there still is this subtle jab at competence it seems like there's a subtle jab at having any sort of expertise in in a way. Yeah. Like in, in its diminutive form, it starts to uh, enshrine ignorance and weakness. And, and that kind of pa gets packaged with enshrining a problem because then you have victimhood cred. Mm -hmm. And that whole marketplace of attention can be really quickened. And there, there was a report that I haven't actually read myself, but people who – there is a some sort of scientific paper on uh, – the, the people studied that those who uh, – it's very – lucrative to be a victim in society you can actually use that to get gain resources people who end up doing that tend to end up lying and cheating a whole lot more than other people like there's some sort of evolutionary mindset like i think that's the what the paper's saying like there's this kind of personality and there are certain cultures that once we start to allow for those behaviors that actually incentivizes lying it incentivizes cheating it incentivizes um, let's just say it makes it really difficult if you watch a congressperson crying about her trauma and then her uh, sexual assault uh, or harassment incident. It makes it really difficult for somebody like me to, to trust that at all because the, yeah. the whole thing is like, when are you telling the truth and when are you just trying to get your way? And I don't trust anything. So it kind of devalues over time like actual uh, weakness uh, and actual yeah. uh, victimhood in a way. Yeah, when you assign a currency to victimhood and vulnerability, how do you tell when people are just after that currency versus actually being vulnerable and genuine? Yeah, it makes it near impossible. And we've created a um, social space in which that sort of currency is the highest form of sort of virtue that you can get nobody's going to question you if you have the most victimhood currency mm -hmm. um so yeah it, it's strange to see 
have how to. have you how has your um like the difficulties that you've faced uh helped you to cut through the crap or help you uh has it helped you be a judge of character has it helped you be more attenuated to people's actual anxiety what kind of wisdoms have that has that gotten you so far i think i would say i like to think so i'd like to think i'm a decent read on character when people are trying to manipulate things to their own benefit but i think everyone would like to think that they're a good judge of character in that manner um (laughs) really i can only come at things from my personal point of view so which is why um things like live streaming a breakdown or a retelling of trauma comes up in my brain as a red flag because it's so far from anything i've experienced myself or people around me that have had similar experiences to me that i know on a personal level um i think with the internet it's pretty easy to tell um who's angling for a benefit from their vulnerability who's looking to exchange that for some sort of social credit and use that um but as far as like i a a personality quality or a signal that you could apply to everyone and get a separation between those two groups of people i don't know if that's possible by nature of like humans Mm. and diversity and people just being good at emulating things that will benefit them being Mm. good chameleons of people i guess but do you find that you have a similar sort of way of looking at people when they do this online from the position of having some sort of anxiety within your life? Are you able to look at people who are sort of exchanging for social credit and have a decent idea of where that motivation is coming from? I know when somebody doesn't have peace inside of them, I guess is one way to say it. I know when people don't have access to being calm uh, in a way, or I can have the ability within certain interactions, such as uh, conversations uh, like we're having right now, I have the ability to calm down a lot because I... I guess I've developed that capacity, even though it runs aground when I'm alone or like when I'm just dealing with myself. But if I have, uh, if I'm given the responsibility of creating something good out of a conversation, then like I ground that in, you know, a certain amount of uh, peace and quiet in order to get into uh, a deeper level of uh, experience or, you know, or just relax the other person so that they can express their expertise however uh, they need to over time. But it's, it was weird because today's, uh, today I was, uh, I'm, I'm getting back into my writing. I have a bunch of books that I'm uh, now serializing and publishing. And I got to a point in one story where, you know, it's kind of based on where I was when I was 20 and this panic attack that I had when I was 20. Like I was in this room in California and that. somebody passed a bowl around and, and this kid takes this hit of pot and like his whole world just starts, you know, trembling and, and he just has yeah. this huge attack of uh, worthlessness and what he's supposed to do with his life and he just starts crying and, he, and then he cries for like three months straight, you know, whatever. So, um, you know, but going into that and the way that I went into describing that, 
I kind of loosened up the uh, loosened up the language to kind of emulate like how fast his thoughts were running. The grammar changes, the pacing changes, and the forcefulness of it. And you know, as as I write, I have to. It was about a page and a half, but I went over and over and over again to make it like this. Uh, you know, like this kind of slip and slide. So the reader just kind of goes through that, and they can go through it several times because there's a lot that they'll miss, but it, it just smooths. But anyways, I was really leaning into the, all those emotions, and then when I was done writing that, like I just felt so uh, vulnerable. Like this whole part of my body was just like really naked, and I just felt like a yeah. like a snail, like like it's like it distended from its shell, and like I have to put this back in somehow. And so like there's just this kind of like yeah. this uh, feeling, this so, feeling, <laughs> okay. yeah. Yeah. Is one aspect of talking about mental health, you essentially just come down to, I'm describing a feeling to you that isn't tangible in any way, but I'm trying to get it across. I think a lot of people deal with um, an aspect of anxiety when they're alone. It seems to be more common that people can sort of put up a front when they're communicating with people or they're doing a job or some sort of task that they have investment in. Yeah, their attention's out there rather than banging around, banging around. Yeah, and then when they're alone, it sort of starts spinning around in their heads and you sort of work yourself into this state. Um, But yeah, for start off, that book sounds really cool. (laughs) Do you have? We'll see. You'll see? Well, I mean, you can see the the first chapter is up on my Substack. I can get you uh, I can get you access if you if you want. I, mean, you can I would love access cool. to that. Uh, alias cool. Alias to Dream. Um, so uh, there's seven books, and I'm just going to serialize them all. They're all uh, it's a total mess, but uh, <laughs> I, I decided to serialize it because now you know I have like four or five subscribers. But now that I have that, like they're expecting yeah. it, so I have to do it. I've been putting it off for yeah. four years now. I wrote it. Uh, the last book I wrote was four years ago. I did this whole YouTube thing. I'm like. Like, okay, but now the, the interesting thing is sorry to talk about myself. No, uh, let's go for it. But like the interesting thing is like my my view on all this other stuff I'm dealing with is like, does it really matter? Do do all this, all this identity politic and victimology? Does it really matter? Do, does like bitching on Twitter about the latest thing to bitch about on Twitter? Like, is does it really matter? It just like I'm watching it. I'm like, it's just not fun. It's just not sub. Stuff substantive, um, but the the problem is is that people don't necessarily want to go with me into my art world, right? So I want to interact with people. I have to interact with people. So I get to do my thing, but then I have to let that go in order to do and participate with bitching about the latest thing to bitch about because that's kind of like where the attention is and I need attention. Uh, not necessarily for my personal benefit, but because that's what I'm dealing with now. Like yeah. attention is, is the, the the lucre that, that I need to be playing around with. Sounds like you've turned sort of compartmentalized Twitter into almost a um, necessary job to yeah. means to an end for you. It helps. I, it helps. That's good. Yeah. That's good. I think I I have to find Twitter fun and I still do. So I'll just take some days off sometimes if I don't feel like staring into the abyss one morning. Um, but I think if I didn't find Twitter fun in some manner if i if i don't laugh when i go onto the app um, it starts to sort of like erode away at sort of my mental psyche um which is really easy when it comes to 
the hell app. <laughs> that yeah, Twitter no, has I've, become. I've noticed that too. Um, I I noticed that it was causing me tremendous amounts of anxiety if yeah. I wasn't being creative with it. Like I had to be making something out of it, or else I shouldn't be dealing with it at all. Uh, and and therefore, like when I'm bitching, it has to be something novel, new, or clever. You know, in, <laughs> yeah. like there has to be an aesthetic boundary, and that keeps me from allowing it to erode my uh, all the things that keep me from Bitching not being for eroded. your mental health. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they should describe that. Go on Twitter, just bitch at people. Be great. So how have you over, like, in the process of uh, kind of owning yourself, owning the, your mental states, how has uh, society shifted for you? What are some things that you've found that are really good for you? And, like, if, if you could go back and talk to yourself about ways out, like, what are, what are some of the basic properties of uh, gaining and maintaining uh, sovereignty over your emotions and your state? For me, I had to... It's probably not much help to me as a teenager, but I had to sort of find who I was as a person independent to the child I grew up with as my parents because hmm. I grew up in a scenario of, um, for lack of a better term, emotional invalidation. So experiencing a clinical level of distress um, sort of bringing that to the people who should be able to go okay so this is how we fix this and them having no idea and sort of being like you're fine it's okay it's normal to feel like this i had to step away out of that as an adult and sort of re um reconfirm that what i felt was um wasn't a moral character flaw within myself but a uh, flawed mechanism within my brain that could be dealt with and mm -hmm. helped in various ways um, was really a large key of getting anywhere with my mental health in the end um, and then just reaching out to people is so cliche reaching out to people getting different people's perspectives involved um not being left to the lockbox that can become your own brain when you're spinning inside of those panicked thoughts um yeah <laughs> it's um and it's it's still something I deal with every day. I'm like sitting, even just like a little thing, like sitting before um, this call, like heart was racing a million miles an hour. <laughs> you're so composed, though. I have to dying. say, you're so composed. I'm. It's probably one of the benefits of having an acting and theatre background is I can kind of just fake it until I make it most of the time. <laughs> um, I mean, similar to you, when you're having a conversation, you can sort of ground yourself and focus on the task, and then maybe it's more afterwards when that focus is removed that more of the um, anxious feelings and thoughts will creep back in. And I think that's the way for most people. There's a, a meme I saw a couple of years ago, and it's a term called the mom friend override. So 
you can't do it. So you have a thing you can't do, like talking to a waiter in a restaurant because it's really hard. But if your friend needs you to talk to a waiter, you now have a task to focus on that isn't centered in you. And there's an override to your ability to do things. Okay. um, If I'm given sort of a task to complete, um, as long as I can get through the short period of time beforehand where I'm alone and psyching myself up for the task once you're in the task it's Mm. easier to sort of give your brain something to cling on to and do rather than let it spin off into chaos (laughs) and panic in a certain way it seems like you have a very uh, you have some very powerful mechanisms uh in you, and they they did go awry, but it also seems like you can like pivot that into a talent. It also seems yeah. like that's actually fuel for you. What do you think is that that positive aspect that you gain from from this, or some of the things that you think are really going to kind of define you as a person beyond the negative? There's a lot to be said for having perspectives from a negative point of view and emotion to be able to sort of empathize with people in their worst moments and have the coin flip to what feeling good is to have a good contrast um i kind of almost think it's where we've sort of spawned this crazy social justice um microaggression culture from if you don't have a decent contrast for what really being in a bad place can be a microaggression can be the worst thing you've experienced in a month or so yeah and in order to validate a, your good feelings you need you need something yeah, bad you, out there you yeah. need a contrast to life if you're feeling good all the time it's not good it's just normal and yeah. so you need to create the sort of flip side to that but if you've already i've already been provided that in sort of a biological base manner um it definitely gives me drive to want to find what aspects of life I would have missed out on if I didn't manage to work on things and get into a better place, saying yes to things like this interview or podcast, saying things like um, I have a couple of streams I want to set up with some friends to do, just having a motivation to get to a better place so you don't go back to where you were as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also feel like I gained a pretty decent ability to read people and assess as to whether someone's coming from a genuine point of view or angling to get something out of you or uh, people as a whole. But yeah, it's. It, I'm also a work in progress. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've really only been... Um, significantly sort of sitting in a better place for the past four or five months um, mm-hmm. um, sort of as far as putting uh, myself in positions that would have induced panic beforehand um, mm-hmm. but having those skills going to a decent therapist um, and getting a lot of things in your toolbox to be able to use is amazing even though it sounds like psychobabble a lot of the time (laughs) from Mm -hmm. perspective of people who haven't experienced that you know there's all these pills out there there's the black pill the red pill the blue pill yeah i think there's a white pill too what what pill did you 
the pink pill. The pink pill. The What's pink pill, that one? Uh, it's HRT. So it's oh, um, okay. sort of colloquial for, um, yeah, the whole conversation about hormones. Yeah. Hormones, okay. Turning kids trans, etc. Yeah. <laughs> Did you yeah, have like yeah. a, a red pill moment or a black pill moment? Like, uh, or in another way of thinking, how is the your life story of going through these different mental states uh, informed you on how to digest political reality insofar as it is reality, maybe hyper reality? Like, <laughs> um, I mean, if we're going <laughs> to. I would like to, I would think the most accurate, if we're going to talk about black pilling, that was probably done at like 13 or 14 years old. We're so far <laughs> past that at this point. We've come out the other end. Um, I think having the perspective of, yeah, it's hard because I know not everyone comes out with the same results at the end of going through a significant period of mental illness of some kind some people genuinely do come out the other end and turn into full-on activists and scream about microaggressions at people um for me it kind of just put life into perspective to what really matters and at the end of the day nobody is being actually harmed or actually um oppressed Mm. by you using a and now not work word no one you coming up to me five years ago and calling me crazy would have been accurate and wouldn't have actually changed my mental state it's not and if it is changing people's mental state it feels like something that you should be avoiding and if social media is triggering that then you should be avoiding social media people don't like to hear that the best thing you can do for yourself is log off but a lot of the time the best thing people can do is log off if you're getting on twitter and being generally genuinely affected by someone making a joke to their friends like not even targeted at you you're just scrolling past and seeing it then yeah, it's it's probably something you need to work on in your own time, not on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. rather than or, attempting to change the world around you to fit your needs when your yeah. needs are coming from a not great perspective. Yeah, also, people. I don't know if this is a bad word, but acting crazy online is not the ticket out of anything, unless you're doing it for the lols. Uh, or you're being a troll. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's really not. You're not helping anything. You're not doing anything. You're actually hurting everybody around you. Or they're going to start seeing that and they'll distance themselves from you. So I, I just don't take people that act bad that seriously. Like. Yeah. You either have a problem it, you need to deal with, or you're trying to cause me a problem, and I'm not going to deal with it. You know, in a way. It's always part of that normalization. The. Uh, it's valid that you feel this way and it's valid that you want to change the world around you to serve to that rather than seeing that maybe there's something within you that needs to change that is actually going to make you feel better. It's not that you're, um, well, I mean, it is that something's wrong. People don't like to admit that like aspects of them can be bad or improved or not uh, authentic and as it was always meant to be. Sometimes people have things wrong and you need to change that. Mm-hmm. But we seem to be moving towards a mindset of even if there is something wrong, I don't need to change that. You need to change 
even how you interface with other people. The interesting thing about Twitter is people don't just get angry at things that are said to them. They get angry at conversations people have with people who aren't them. Surrogate um, offense or offendedness, yeah, I guess. I'm offended on your behalf, and it's just as valid. Is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you got some streams set up in the future. You're going to be producing some content for the people. With a couple of, with a group of people, hopefully, it's still um, in Is this like, a, like sh- months, shit posting or shit talking or um, uh, you know, crafty thing? Or what's the theme? <laughs> what are you guys angling for? A crafty thing. I'm totally going to DIY things now. Um, um, currently, we have a um, D&D live stream plan to run oh. a homebrewed campaign based on Australian culture. Oh, cool. Has have the working title somewhere that is amusing enough for me to share. Beholders and Boomerangs is currently the title for it. But um it's just ideas that we have for the future currently. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And you're you're already on Twitter. I guess that's w- what we've kind of yes. talked about. Where can people find you, and what what can they expect from what they see? <laughs> Chaos. <laughs> um, I'm on Twitter at Bad Cripple. Um, my alt is Banned Cripple because Twitter has been banning everyone and their mother over the last few days. Um, mines under the same username because mines has come back to life in the last six months and that has been Hmm. quite fun interesting to interact on social media without um censors and worried that you're going to get banned for saying things it's sort Mm. of like how the internet used to be 10 years ago the wild (laughs) west has transferred to a different website um but i'm that's basically where i am at this point um if i'm if i'm on a platform it's bad cripple so yeah well I'm going to end the recording thank you for joining me Jess (laughs) thank you for having me and allowing just enough vulnerability to not be milking it for social credit (laughs) exactly (laughs) I'm going to end it there congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion if you enjoyed it do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.